Do you take a seat, folks? Uh, we're going to look at that uh, part of uh, Revelation uh, together just for a few minutes. And what do I want to say at the beginning? Um, I want to say we are on the home stretch, if you've been with us, um, uh, looking through the book of Revelation and have works through it. Um, there's this week and next week are the last ones, so depending on how that lands for you. Um, what else I want to say is I'm very aware in a, in a room like this, um, and chapters 19 and 20, which will, uh, are, are full of quite a lot of different things, and I've tried to tease a way through for us uh, today, but there might be lots you want to reflect on or talk about or ask questions about afterwards. But I'm aware in a room like this, there'll be some of you who have a very high investment level in this bit of the Bible and some of what it says, or you may know people or are close to people who have a very high investment in what exactly this means and, uh, and how you put it together. Um, some of you um, will have a very low investment level in, in what's uh, in these chapters, and you'll be like, this is the kind of thing I don't really uh, sort of what particularly sort of Trust me, and I'm not that worried. Um, and so I'm aware there'll be quite different levels um, going on. And so you might be sitting next to somebody who is very, very interested uh, in this, and you yourself may not be, or vice versa. So uh, be aware of that as you chat to people and reflect on it. Um, as a teenager, we are look- so the, the topic, the, the focus we have is, is the return of Jesus, the end times. And as a teenager... This was something that um, like I didn't really come across a great deal. And then one, uh, one point with some others, we were shown a video um, in, a, in a kind of uh, youth setting. We were shown a video, a film, um, which was sort of covering this topic. Um, now, I, I imagine, I don't really know, I can't honestly remember the kind of film uh, that it was, but I guess it was either a precursor or something related to the kind of the left behind kind of series, if you come across those, or the idea of the sort of the end times and what it would be like, um, and what it would be like both for, uh, for those who sort of joined Jesus and those who didn't, and so on. And it was honestly one of the scariest things I've ever watched. And it stayed with me for years. Um, it, was really, it was really quite dark. It was very unnerving, very uncomfortable, this idea that uh, sort of, you know, the end would come, uh, particularly if you were left here, terrible things seemed to unfold, and it was really quite um, uh, scary. Uh, and it, what it left me with was a strong sense that the, the return of Jesus, that my overriding emotion was one of fear, uh, that I should be sort of fearful, and that actually the, the idea that it you know, wasn't really a, uh, a very good thing, um, I was very wary of it, and I'm aware that for some of you, you may have that same kind of, whether from childhood or at some point, you may have that same idea in your minds that actually, to be honest, I don't really like the idea of Jesus' return. Um, very quietly, I'd really prefer he didn't, because I don't feel like I know quite what will happen. I don't feel very safe about it. I don't know the idea of, of what it is. Uh, but the Bible... Um, and that, was, that really kind of carried with me for many, many years. I'll come back, come back to it in a bit. But the Bible, when it talks about Jesus' return, uh, in general and, and usually, talks about it as a good thing. It looks forward to it. It rejoices over the prospect of Jesus' return. It's seen as a good thing for, uh, for us uh, uh, who follow him and for the world. Uh, and I want to try and tease out some of that through this um, section here and just talk about why, um, why it is a good thing. 
Um, and you know, perhaps tell you a little bit about uh, what happened to me along the way as I was trying to process some of this through. So we're going to look at three things. The first two are kind of two sides of the same coin, really. We're going to think about so why Jesus' return is a good thing. And the, the first thing is that it brings a trustworthy judgment. But equally, the other part of that, the counterpart to that, is it ends false judgment. So those two things kind of go together. So the first two. And then we'll think about how it ends all evil. So Jesus' return brings trustworthy judgment, it ends false judgment, and it ends all evil. And that these are good things for us. So let's have a look and see how we go. And I'm just going to read the opening um, section again uh, for us um, from uh, Revelation uh, 19, which started at verse 11. Um, And if I can find it here. Uh, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head he has uh, many crowns. His name written on him, uh, he has a name written on him that no one else knows but he himself. And he's dri- dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Uh, he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, which we um, came across earlier in the book of Revelation. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this figure, you can imagine, it's, we've seen lots and lots of different picture language through Revelation. Here is another one which is picturing this figure, um, symbolizing Jesus, Uh, A figure on a white horse, um, a sort of sweeping in, uh, dramatic, looking impressive, um, all these kind of names and associations with him. Uh, In particular, um, you'll notice he says his eyes are blazing like fire. Uh, and his, uh, his, out of his mouth is the, this sword, the word of God. But the, the, the details there are meant to give us the sense, not only of a sort of hero who arrives, but someone who sees rightly and knows how to judge. So the eye, his, his eyes are blazing in the sense that they can see what other things can't see. They can see the reality of the world. They can see into the human heart. They can see and judge and, just, and, and, and act justly. So this figure, this hero figure, is the kind of, um, the one with the power and the ability, uh, uh, able and effective, to bring just judgment. Now, Visually, you might, you know, I've, I've said as we've gone through Revelation, it's hard to read Revelation without thinking of the Lord of the Rings, or at least hard to watch the Lord of the Rings now without thinking of Revelation. So there is a, you know, there's lots of moments in these uh, movies which uh, kind of combine together, and you think, so if you want to bring it to mind, this from one of these old films these days, is the moment there's a great battle going, and there's a moment where the, all, all seems lost, and Gandalf appears, he's on a white horse. Uh, in the middle, at the centre there at the top, he's in it, and they suddenly appear over the ridge, uh, and he's standing there, or sort of seated on this horse, and they all kind of fling down towards the battle. This sort of figure that you are longing for, who can come in and intervene, and here in Revelation, bring just uh, good judgments, when everything looks lost, bring light, is that kind of figure. Um, I don't know how you follow sort of the events of the world at the moment, but I... I feel like every week goes by and there is some kind of review into some organization or institution uh, which says, you know, 
this is what we think has gone wrong here. Um, and this is what needs to change or happen, um, whether it's a business, whether it's politics or a politician. I think last week it was sports, and there was a review into cricket. Uh, a review happened. Somebody, kind of, people have gathered together and said, Look, we need some judgment needs to come or, or happen. And it's funny, in the world, even, I suspect even that we live in now, we would know that longing for somebody who can come and judge justly and wisely and bring a verdict into a situation. And if we're very honest, I think, as well, the church has not been immune to this in recent years, particularly over the past two, three, four, five years. And some of you will know, not necessarily everyone, but in various places in the UK and across the world, similar processes, a longing for judgment, a review has needed to happen. Somebody has come to say, look, let's try and we need light brought on into this situation. And I know some of you have processed quite a lot of that uh, in sort of church circles here and overseas uh, over recent years. It's not been easy, and I've, quite honestly, I've been trying to do the same over a number of years, just processing what has happened in some of these different spheres. Why? How have we got to this point? And I know it has been troubling for many of you, and if that's something that you are pondering or have been processing, and I know some are, do feel you can come and talk to me about it, or one of the staff team, or others. Uh, It's an important thing that's been taking place. But I wonder if it speaks to us of our need for and our longing for just judgment, good judgment, someone who can actually see what is going on. In all the clamor and the, 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 the need to kind of, how do we make sense of this? Someone who can bring light to that. So what the Bible pictures as Jesus' final return is the final arrival of the one who can do that. And it's good news. It's good news for us. It's good news for the world that somebody can come who can actually see into every human heart and knows the reality of what's going on. Who can see into every institution, every part of life. So Jesus' return brings just, trustworthy judgment. And the flip side of that, the other side of the coin, is that... He ends false judgment. So there's another side to that, because it's not enough to just come in and say, well, I bring just judgment. Actually, I can tell you what false judgment is and what isn't right. And so that picks us, uh, kind of carries on in the next part. Um, the story, so this rider has appeared on the ridge, a bit like Gandalf, and then there's this, it's, there's this battle that's happening, and so he kind of sweeps down into that. And the battle, the story of the battle is kind of picked up, and we'll meet a couple of characters, that we've, some of whom we've met before, and I'll explain who they are. So verse 19 Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse, Jesus, and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet. Uh, The false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf, the beast's behalf, with these signs, he deluded those who'd received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them, those two creatures, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. So the picture is of a battle scene and there's these two characters, these two creatures, the beast and the false prophet, and they are soundly defeated. They're thrown into this fiery lake. Again, a picture, language, picture of them being defeated and destroyed uh, forever. Now, who are they? Now, if you have been with us, we have met the beast along the way and I've shown you various kind of pictures of of medieval pictures where they, they, you know, I've I guess I've tried to tell you, although we might not go near these chapters very often, through church history and history generally, people have been really interested in them. There's all sorts of pictures out there. Although occasionally, if you ever do any searching online for Revelation kind of pictures, you get some 
some crazy stuff, so just beware. Um, but the beast, I've, I've said before, we've met the beast, and it's a picture of or a symbol of human worldly powers that are ranged against God. Uh, rulers, authorities, regimes that are against God and his ways. And we've, we've sort of seen them uh, at different points. But they're, they're joined here, and it's been mentioned already in Revelation. We've just not picked up too much of it um, in this series. With a creature called the false prophet, often depicted as another kind of beast, and a slightly different kind of thing, where instead of worldly powers almost from the top down, the false prophet, as the name suggests, is the sort of uh, it, it's a, uh, the, the, the worldly um, ideologies or worldviews or the sort of uh, the language that is used to kind of cultivate opposition to God. Because not everything comes from the top down with powers that say, we'll stop God's people by doing this. Some of it comes through the words that are spoken, through uh, ideologies, messages against God, so to speak, that make their way out. Now, so in, uh, in, again, sort of going back, this is early 1500s, here's a depiction of the false prophet. The false prophet is this rather menacing figure on the right-hand side who is whispering in the ear of someone in authority. So opposition to God, rather than from the top down, but more insidious, more sort of in through the back door, creating opposition to God's, a different worldview that's not God's. And again, because, you know, Lord of the Rings and, uh, and Revelation track hand in hand, you, again, if this helps you, it might not. The figure of worm tongue in the Lord of the Rings is exactly that figure. So you have a king in the middle there, very sort of aged and shaky at this point, being controlled by this figure, worm tongue, who whispers in his ear and directs the course of what he does. And so in Revelation, it's, it's, it's a picture and a symbol of the way in which opposition to God doesn't just form around powers, that are very obvious, but also worldviews and ideologies that come in more subtly. Um, I, uh, I, I came across um, a writer, commentator, political commentator this week, Matthew Paris, writing and just reflecting on, uh, he was talking about what does it mean for us to live in the world now when, by and large, people have tried to do away with God. What happens when you do that? And you might know this, you might kind of resonate with this kind of world. He's talking at himself as someone who isn't a believer. And he says, uh, he's writing and saying, I wonder, as a, somebody who isn't a believer, whether an age without God feels a greater responsibility to look into the hearts of others and judge. What he's trying to get across is that we live in a world which is highly, highly judgmental these days and highly weaponized, where language and words, if somebody says something and you'll get tribes and armies that marshal and say, you guys are all wrong and you guys are all wrong. And we live in this world where worldviews and ideologies are fought, um, and even, even amongst Christians, sort of ideologies infiltrate and then groups divide and say, you're wrong and you're wrong. And as a non-believer, he's saying, look, I look and I see this and I see when you take God out of the picture, the one who can judge who can say, no, that's false judgment. When you take God out of the picture, actually, we all end up trying to do it ourselves. And it's fascinating to see somebody who's not a Christian voicing that and saying, I don't actually think this is a very good thing. It's not a great place we've got to. And it's that similar kind of longing, not only for good judgment, but a longing that there wouldn't be this endless false judgment that we live in. 
where words are weaponized and groups are marshaled against one another. And if you've ever felt any of that in your interactions online or you've seen it and thought, I just, I can't fathom the whirlwind. You, you say one thing and whole armies seem to range around on either side. He's talking about that same kind of longing for a judge to come who can just judge justly, is trustworthy, and knows what false judgment is. I found that kind of uh, interesting to reflect on as I was looking through this. So the, the idea that Jesus returns is good news. It's good news. It, he brings this uh, trustworthy judgment. He ends false judgments. But I guess for us, if you are a Christian here this morning, what should that cultivate in us? I think it should give us a humility about how we go about things. Because actually we're those, ironically, this is something that Matthew Paris points out, that Christians can say this. We're those who can say, actually, God is the one who knows how to judge, not me. And I can leave that to him. It should cultivate a humility, actually not a self-righteousness on our parts, but one that humbly says, God is the one who ultimately will come and judge and knows what good and just judgment is and knows what false judgment is. Okay, thirdly, uh, Jesus' return brings an end to all evil. Now, if I'm going to lose you at any point, I'm going to lose you here. So um, if I've already lost you, that's, you, you know, you're well gone. So, um, there is a part of this uh, which is going to talk about um, this final, then final battle with Satan. And it's going to talk about a thousand years. And I'm aware that um, it's hard to get your head around and, and that like, the major Christian denominations have taken different views on this over, over the years. And so I'm going to try and explain to you what I think is going on here. You may take a different view, or loved ones you have may take a different view, and that's okay. I'm going to tell you what I think makes sense to me, but I appreciate others will have different views. And if you want to come and talk to me uh, and you know, convince me I'm wrong and you're right, no problem. You can come do that afterwards. But there is a story that follows. So the end of this return and this final battle that is taking place, chapter 20, and I'll just draw the threads out. First, John has this picture of an angel coming out of heaven with a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, the dragon is explained as the ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, locked him, sealed it over, um, and to keep him from deceiving the nations until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And then the story continues in verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison. Uh, There's a sort of final battle that comes. He's going to deceive the nations. Uh, They'll gather in battle, verse 9. They march across the earth. They surround the camp of God's people. So the final showdown, the city he loves. But fire comes down from heaven and devours them. The devil then who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet from before uh, are uh, already. And it's the final, final defeat of Satan. Now, how we work this out, I've got a little table which um, uh, hopefully sort of uh, explains this um, uh, or maps this out. There are, there are different parts here, and John is seeing things which I think um, uh, reach back into uh, other chapters that he's talked about, um, and, um, and then uh, also sort of point us to the end. I don't know whether, I mean, we had some trouble with this table, so I'm going to see if it is going to reappear. Maybe it will. Hooray. Great. What he's talking about, when he's, uh, 
when he says he seized the dragon and bound him for a thousand years, it echoes what we saw in chapter 12. And you might remember, I talked about Jesus's uh, victory at the cross, his death, resurrection, and ascension, was the key decisive victory. And what it does is it binds Satan at that point and limits him in the sense of he no longer has the power he once had, but it doesn't mean that he's not at work, uh, or there isn't a kind of, we've seen over these past weeks, spiritual forces at work in the world, uh, malevolent ones, evil ones, but he is bound in, in that way by Jesus' death and resurrection. It was a decisive moment, but it wasn't the end. And then I take it from uh, the way that's depicted here, a thousand years is often just a, a shorthand for a sort of a significant period of time, a long period of time, and that thousand years is then the age in between. So from Jesus' death to his return, it's essentially the age that we live in, which we've seen depicted in different ways through Revelation. So there is this long period in between, and then at his final return, Satan is finally defeated and removed and uh, dumped into this uh, lake. Again, a picture of just uh, being completely gone. And so all evil, the, the presence of evil finally is completely gone. So the power of evil was dealt with at the cross, but the presence of evil isn't finally gone until the end. And so in between those two is where we live currently. <laughs> That's fine. Um, now, others take slightly different views and try to work that out in different ways, and it is complicated, and, you know, and you hardly get to a point where you think, I've, I've absolutely got this nailed down. But that's the broad sense in which I, I kind of take what's going on here. Because the chapter is giving us this sense of the finality of the presence of evil, ultimately in this final uh, battle. But it means this too is good news, if you think about it, for, uh, for the persecuted church that Ruth and uh, Pete were talking about at the start. If you are somebody who is in a part of the world where uh, to follow God means very difficult, challenging persecution and the threat of death, to know that one day... That will be entirely gone is good news, isn't it? We might know that Satan's power is limited now, limited while the gospel still is spoken and still is communicated around the world, but to know it will one day be gone is so important. And similarly, if you're somebody who lives with the consequences of evil in your own life, whether that's something that has happened to you at some point, something done to you, To know that one day you won't live with that in the same way forever, that actually the presence of evil finally will be gone in a new heaven and a new earth is so valuable to know. And John's writing to his readers here, who, as I said uh, last week, were living under the Roman Empire, living under that kind of challenging circumstances to be a Christian, to know one day it will finish would have been so precious. Why is Jesus doing all this? Why are we being told this? Because he loves us. Because he loves you and me. It's what is buried deep in the last bit of that uh, section where this final battle takes place. The armies against God are camped around God's people, verse 9. The city he loves. And he's doing this because he loves you and me. He, uh, imagine for a moment, I don't know if you have ever had this scenario where something has happened, perhaps in a, a family setting, uh, where something's happened back where your family are, and you're, perhaps you're away, and it's happened, and 
you have, you've thought to yourself, I need to get home now because I need to go and help them. I need to go and be with them. I need them to know that I love them. I need to go and help sort this out. So, you, you know, you, you think, right, I've got to get on a plane. I've got to get on a train. I've got to get in the car, whatever it is. I've got to get home now. It's going on there. They've thrown me up. I need to get back. I want them to know that I love them. And it's the same sort of drive here that Jesus is saying, actually, my return is because I love you, because I need to come, I need to bring this kind of judgment, I need to do away with evil, because I love who you are. I love you, my family. Um, For many years, as I said at the start, as a teenager, I watched this very scary movie, and was, I lived largely in fear of Jesus' return. I thought it was a ter- terrible thing. It was kind of, I, you, know, you wouldn't want to say it, but just dread the idea. Um, really through, uh, like I, I was in my early 20s, I happened to come across a newspaper article written in a broadsheet newspaper. Um, occasionally you come across this kind of thing. Um, it was written by a professor, uh, Tom Wright, who's a bishop in the Church of England, um, and I can't even remember the time of year that it was or why he was writing there, but for some reason a broadsheet newspaper had given him a bit of space to write about the return of Jesus and about heaven. And the really interesting thing was he said most Christians don't realize that Jesus' return is good news. Most Christians don't realize Jesus' return is good news. It's not, uh, it's not just sort of disappearing up to some cloud in the sky. He said Jesus' return in the Bible is about him coming to defeat evil finally and to usher in a new world, to renew this world, a new heaven, new earth, a new creation, which is where we're actually going to go next week, the final one in Revelation, so come back for that, to usher in a new creation because he loves us, because we are his family. Because he says, this is what I know you need. I defeated evil at the cross. I will one day come and rid the world of the presence of evil. I'll renew the world because I love you. And if you take anything from today, I hope it might be that if you are somebody who, like me, has at times lived with a kind of quiet fear or a dread about Jesus' return, that you might think, you know, I think that would be a good thing. I think that some of the longings that I have for this world might be met in Jesus returning and making all things right. Why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, I pray that that's uh, what you would do in us today, that we might see afresh uh, the goodness of your return, that it might encourage us to, uh, to reflect not only on our world, but on what it needs. And Lord, if we're Christians here, I pray we would, uh, we would long for that and, and rejoice in it, and it would be an anchor for us knowing what is coming. Uh, Lord, if we're, any here aren't Christians yet, I pray it might just speak to the longings that we have in our own hearts. What we long for in this world actually will one day be met in your return. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.